Yates on Sunday on News Talk. Brought to you by SSE Electricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you. To start off with, we're joined by our panel to discuss the stories in the morning newspapers and review the week. On one side is the joint leader of the Social Democrats, TD for Dublin Northwest, Roisin Shortall. Um, very interesting uh, comments by Tony O'Brien, boss of the CHSE today. Is it at variance with your report on the future of health funding that you chaired? No, I wouldn't say so. No, okay. it's very much in line with that. Actually, and he welcomes our report, and he says he's uh, quite—he's uh, got a lot of confidence in the future of the health service if we can implement that. Okay, lots more about that. Alongside her is Finnegale TD for Dublin North West, also a member of the Public Accounts Committee, Noel Rock, licking himself this morning because Leo is up in the polls. Are you? <laughs> have you got that self? Is Finnegale self-satisfied? Smug on today? I wouldn't smug. say smug, but uh, it's good to see that people are reconsidering in Finnegale again after a long time in the doldrums. And beside our two politicos, the voice of common sense, social affairs correspondent with the Irish Times, Kitty Holland, you're very welcome this Sunday. Thank you. you. Good. Okay. now let's turn to the front pages of the papers. The Sunday Business Post leads with HSE Chief Tony O'Brien. He he penned his own article. Too many A&E units, too much political interference, a withering assessment of the health service. We'll be coming to that. Uh, A big black hole in the teachers' pension fund. Uh, Turning to the Sunday Independent, they have a a story I heard a rumour of um, as their strap lewd. Dobbo, Brian Dobson, is going to get up early in the morning. He's not going to do the 601 News. Uh, Sharon speaks out and RT pay gap as Dobson moves to Morning Ireland. But their main headline comes from their opinion poll. Squeeze middle want tax cuts as Leo soars. The main story is the satisfaction with the government is up 13 points from the last time they took it back in February when Endo was limping on. It's up to 40%. But still nip and tuck between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, 30 and 29%. Lots of photos from Croke Park last night. I was there myself. 82,000. What an event. Great success. The homecoming for you two. Just the one concert. Well, a, a beautiful day for former Ireland captain Robbie Keane and his wife Claudine. Pictured going into Croker. Their lead in the Sunday Times is Irish Embassy aids citizen in US terror case. This is Irish Embassy officials in America providing consular assistance to an Algerian-born man. And finally, the Irish Mail on Sunday. They have an interview with Angela Nealand uh, who was involved in that very tragic case in relation to her six-year-old son, uh, Tristan, who died. My boy died, yet charity got top-ups. St John of God approved secret 1.8 million payouts to chiefs just weeks after damning report into child's death in their care. Well... Uh, lots of coverage and editorials on whether uh, the Garda Commissioner, Noreen O'Sullivan, can survive the latest uh, setback for her coming in relation to the PAC report uh, into Templemore. It was damning in terms of the word unacceptable was used about her conduct, in terms of not informing the Minister, in terms of not giving direct answers, and basically being part of the problem rather than part of the solution. But one man who was standing four square behind her was our Leo. 
It's also important to bear in mind that ultimately it is the judgment of the Garda Commissioner to decide uh, whether or not uh, the Minister and and AG should be informed and what point and the explanation she's given and holds to to date uh, is that she wanted to get all the facts ready before doing so. But uh, like I say, under law, it's her judgment, not somebody else's. Leo there again expressing full confidence in the Commissioner. No, Rock, you remember the Public Accounts Committee. I didn't see at the press conference actually there uh, during the week launching the report. Um, it seemed to me a clear majority of the committee do not have confidence in Noreen O'Sullivan. Uh, they found her responses in terms of when she first knew about this problem. I think July 15 or in or around then. Um, do you have confidence in her? Uh, first of all, yes. Yes, I do. Um, I think that there are a lot of challenges within Ungarda Shikana and a lot of challenges facing the Commissioner. Um, I think there are a lot of inquiries that are still ongoing into Garda Shikana. Um, and I think this is just the first instalment of the work of the PAC. I think there'll be more instalments to come. Um, but I do think she should be given the opportunity to address those challenges in, in a full and cohesive way. Um, I think what uh, the Taoiseach said there is absolutely valid as well, though. Um, I think she says she was waiting to get the fullest possible account of things before reporting. Um, I I believe that. Um, And I think that, you know, the Public Accounts Committee, maybe the majority are in favour of her stepping aside. Um, But certainly the report uh, doesn't say that. Um, And maybe the majority of the Dáil are in favour of her stepping aside. But certainly it's not the prerogative of the Oireachtas or the Dáil. It's the prerogative of government uh, to decide on the position of Noreen O'Sullivan and of the Guard Commissioner. And right now the government are saying that we have confidence in her. But if if you take on top of that, uh, she makes no public response that I heard of in relation to the report. She goes on five weeks holidays, which includes the date of the last week of July, where she was due to account before the police authority, effectively her board of directors. She said she's too busy to meet the Justice Committee in relation to the breath tests. It sounds to me a bit of an affront that she, 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 she takes off and she doesn't deal with these issues. Uh, five weeks is certainly a very long time to take holidays and despite being a politician who's often accused of taking eight weeks plus holidays, uh, I've never actually seen such a long holiday in my life. And, uh, you know, she's had a very challenging mm. period, I think, and a very challenging year. Um, so I can understand the need for space to reflect and to work through what is quite a volume of paperwork before establishing... Um, you know her position and how she intends to address the challenges that Angarda Shikana are facing in September. So you know we can call them holidays, but I think it's really more so a period of reflection as to how to address the and challenges. Could ahead. there be could there be a Machiavellian plot here? A senior Garda rang me on Wednesday to say, "Oh, the rumor is she's taken eight weeks' holidays. She'll be on full pension entitlement in September, and she may not be returning as commissioner." Is it that? Uh, don't watch what I'm saying, watch what I'm doing. Is there a possibility that given the fracas in relation to Callanan's, uh, you know, debacle of his departure, that there might be a possibility whereby she might shuffle along quietly? Uh, I'm not going to comment on speculation or rumour, but I think certainly uh, based on that, we've, we've got our first headline out of the programme today. Um, it's certainly the case that that's something that hasn't crossed my desk to date, but... Um we, we wait and see, but it would now, be it would be solving a very tricky problem facing into Charlton and so on. 
Uh, yeah, potentially. But again, it's all rumours and speculation. And you know yourself, you get phone calls, I'm sure, as a journalist all the time from Garda sources. Sometimes they can be trusted and sometimes less so. So we'll, uh, we'll wait and see. OK. Kitty, Kitty Holland, a, a lot of stuff there. Um, you know, the the report about Templemore is mm. simply damning. Yeah. I mean, you know, the laundry account, the restaurant account, the property they took the rental from, yeah. from the farm, you know, Olaf, the EU authorities are now going to investigate this. This is just a crock of manure. Do you think the leadership and management in the Phoenix Park have been part of the good guys or the bad guys in revealing all this? Well, I mean, I actually have some sympathy for Noreen O'Sullivan. Um, I, I wonder, is she being left there to take all this flack and all this heat um, because it's politically expedient for that for her to do so or for, for the government to leave her there um, I mean if if she goes um, I think the government goes and I think that's the political reality and I think that's what uh, Sinn Féin Labour etc would love to see that uh, that Leo Varadkar would uh, have to would, his government would collapse in ignominy um, and that um Equally, Fina Gael are absolutely desperate to keep her in place because she is absorbing all this flack. I mean, what would actually it achieve if she left except a political coup for the opposition and a political uh, disaster for the government? Would it achieve anything within the Garda Corner for her to leave? Because, I mean, it's, it's clearly so deeply corrupt, deeply um, troubled, deeply dysfunctional at all levels throughout the... I mean, it seems to me, as someone who doesn't have a huge uh, level of knowledge about the internal workings of the Guardian, from what I'm hearing and what I'm observing and what I'm reading, it just seems to be absolutely replete with problems. And to remove the head, what what would that achieve? Well, I do what it would achieve. I mean, I've come to the view that, and I didn't realise, but for 14 years in the 50s and 60s, we had a civilian Guardian Commissioner Mm. The picture painted to me by the Templemore report was you had John Barrett, you had Niall Kelly uh, doing uh, the audit and Ken Ruan, head of legal services. The one thing they had in common is they were civilians. They mm. weren't uniformed people. And they were pro- uh, pro- uh, applying modern standards of accounting practices, business and corporate practices in terms of transparency. And they came up against this thing of circling the wagons, uh, the culture to withhold information, to, to obfuscate and so on. Now, it strikes me as, as, as absolutely significant and sending a statement right throughout the force if you'd say, yeah, not only are we not going to persist with Noreen, we're going to appoint either an outsider or a civilian. That would send a pretty I sharp agree, cultural statement. And, and, and I suppose the second half of what I w- would have gone on to say yeah. is that simply just removing Noreen O'Sullivan, I don't think will achieve a, a huge amount unless it's accompanied by a huge level of reform. Along the lines of what happened to the Royal Ulster Conservative in the north, where it was just disbanded, and there was the removal of the oath, and there was remove, and there was a, a change in recruitment process, there was a change in training, there was a whole root and branch change of culture, and the PSNI was cre- um, created. And I think for all the ongoing sectarian problems in the north, no one really looks at the PSNI now and says it's a sectarian police force. It's still dominated, perhaps, by more Protestants than Catholics, but it has become seen as a, a force that is there for the whole of society. And I think very that's interesting to see. Kathleen O'Toole, who's chairing mm-hmm. that patent style reform, saying this week up in Donegal at the McGill School, if the Gardaí don't take this now opportunity to reform, it will never be reformed. Yeah, and, and I think the, that's what's needed. And I, th- I think just, you know, if, if we're all just a call for Noreen O'Sullivan's head, I think 
you know, someone else just another guard comes in and and everything goes on and nothing much is achieved apart from a coup for Sinn Fein. I I think what's needed is actually for Angarda Shikana in some way to be disbanded and and a whole new force or a whole new culture, a whole a new name, a new uniform, a new recruitment process, a new ethos, a new training, a new everything because. I don't trust. I don't don't have faith in the guard Khan at the moment. I mean, the the average guard I would meet on the street, I would feel was, was a good guy. But in terms of how it does its business, I'm not. I'm not sure I trust it. And I don't think that's good for the guards. I would hate to be a guard at the moment working in there. Well, I, say, I, I, I have to say now because um, just on that very point, I have a son living in Barcelona, and they were saying over there the cops are corrupt. I don't think the cops are corrupt in that sense here. I mean, you do have a general sense that you can trust the cops. I, I think this is an issue of reform. There was one thing, and, and your colleague, uh, Roisin, uh, Catherine Murphy, was very forceful on the PAC. What, what say the Social Democrats about Templemore and about accountability? Well, Catherine Murphy was actually one of the first people to raise this on foot of a report in the Sunday Times. And I remember being in the doll the day she raised this with the Tánaiste and then Minister for Justice, Francis Fitzgerald, where she asked about the report. Why was it being kind of kept under wraps? And uh, at the time, Francis Fitzgerald said, oh, it has been published and it's been sent to the Justice Committee. That was actually completely untrue. There's an attempt just to bury the thing and to keep nothing it all to quiet. see here. Nothing to see here, exactly. And you know, Catherine was, you know, dogged in terms of pursuing that, and that led, in many ways, to the issue being examined in detail by the Public Accounts Committee. But you know, we've been of the view in the Social Democrats for some time that Noreen O'Sullivan's position is untenable, given a whole litany of failures um, on her part, and also the fact that you know she was very much part of the regime that has existed there, the senior management regime As one of two deputy years. commissioners with Calan. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I agree with the point that Kitty is making there that it's not just about removing Noreen O'Sullivan. There is a fundamental problem with the kind of culture that exists within the Gardaí, which is about closing ranks. It's about kind of um, very much looking down on anybody who criticises or who brings forward concerns. And that's a very, very unhealthy uh, kind of culture and atmosphere to have within a, a state agency. And, you know, you can see why it was then that Maurice McCabe was completely alienated within the, the force when he raised very legitimate concerns and how it led to that whole debacle. So that kind of culture has to change. And you don't do that with people who have come up through the ranks, who have been inculcated with that culture and I think it was a mistake not to go outside the the back in 2014 back in 2014 to get an outsider to come in but one single outsider coming in as head of the force wouldn't have been able to do it that person would have had to come in with a team because you know that culture permeates every aspect of the force and most most notably in the senior ranks of management there so I remember what do you make of the holiday? Well, I think it's it's outrageous, really, that she is facing so many different inquiries and investigations and she goes off for a period of five weeks on a road trip in the States. I think the standout article in today's papers, all of the papers have huge coverage of this. The standout article is from Mary Regan, I think, in the Business Post, who talks about how uh, serious problems within the Gardaí dogged the leadership of Enda Kenny. And, I mean, that was a huge failing on his part, 
not to grasp that and you know he hid behind um, the review then minister review. He review never after review issue, yeah. yeah and ne- never led on it and you know never took a decision until he had no choices back was against the wall and that showed a huge weakness on the part of Enda Kenny I think and you know has has undermined any kind of confidence within the Gardaí and Mary Regan is saying there's a real danger of the same thing happening now with Leo Varadkar yeah, his response the other day yeah, was very yeah, yeah. I can, can I say about that um, and I'll come to you as well N- Noel on this that I could see how for Enda Kenny to lose two commissioners in your tenure as Taoiseach would be a bit of an issue especially when you appointed the second one but Leo had made his reputation by being supportive of McCabe, the distinguished versus the disgusting stuff. And it really was a kind of moment in his career where he kind of stood out from the groupthink of, of the establishment. But every move that he's taken since is kind of to double down on reinforcing it. And Kitty said something there that, you know, basically the the, 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 the concept that... If the commissioner goes, the government is brought down. It needn't have been this way if he created blue water between the two. Yeah, um, I I agree with you. I agree with a lot of what Kitty said there. I don't necessarily agree with the idea that if she goes, the the government goes. Um, I do think there is a need to reflect on, on the full findings of this. And that'll come, I think, towards the end of the year in particular. I mean, there will be more inquiries. There will be more public accounts committee hearings. Um, we will have further reports on this. Um, we'll obviously have the... But there was a very central point that came out of the PAC investigation, and that is that in 2015, Noreen O'Sullivan signed off on the account. She's the, the accounting officer, officer for the yep. Gardaí. OK, so the book stops with her in terms of financial accountability. And on the 31st of July 2015, she signed off on the accounts. Now, there are two points about that. The first one was that she knew for about a week beforehand that there were serious problems in in Templemore. Mm -hmm. And she didn't notify the Department of Justice, which she was required to do under the law, nor did she notify the CNAG. And that's the critical one, in my view. She signed off on accounts to say everything was fine. She had a legal responsibility to bring concerns to the CNAG's attention, and she didn't do that. Now, I think the extraordinary thing is that Leo Varadkar had said that was a matter of judgment for her. It wasn't a matter of judgment for her. She is required to do that as an accounting officer. And Leo has put himself four square behind that behaviour, that lack of accountability. And that's the very disappointing aspect of this, that you know he didn't see there is a clear financial requirement of an accounting officer to do the right thing in terms of, of financial accountability. And he seems to be defending the indefensible in relation to... Well, Norman I think this comes back behavior. to the, the point you made yourself earlier on, that there is a, a sort of a, a rotten culture to a certain extent pervading all levels. Um, you know, if we look at point number 31 of the PAC report in the summaries, it says a culture within on Garda Shikana withholding information, uh, providing inadequate information and keeping issues know, internal yes, yes, we, to avoid we, we external that, inquiry. But, but the question is, is not that something though. went wrong. It's what does the government mm. do about it when it went wrong and we've, we saw for years Enda Kenny and his cabinet you know hoping that this thing would go away brushing it under the carpet and unfortunately it looks like Leo Varadkar is going to take the same kind of approach I mean well, this was a point when Leo I don't needed, necessarily agree with that when Leo Varadkar needed to stand up and say this behaviour on the part of an accounting officer is not acceptable and I think that speaks to the desperation of Fine Gael to keep, to keep, her, keep her there keep the ship steady possibly knowing there's a lot worse to come 
and are you going to have the next person have to then take responsibility for the worst that's to come I think she, I feel that she's there as the battering ram to absorb all this and she will, she'll have to go eventually I, I think that's inevitable John Drennan has a piece today which is quite interesting and he says this is in the Mail on Sunday one PAC source noted Leo's a bit like a bishop who banned the book before he read it just to be sure this is not what we expected in terms of regime change from Leo. I, I, I don't know about that, and I don't know about the quote, and I'd never trust an anonymous quote in that article in particular. Um, on the interim audit report, there were 19 recommendations, Ivan. Uh, five have been fully done, uh, five have been partially done, and nine are in progress. I think we're very much midstream here in terms of reform of Angarda Síochána. We all talked, I think all, all three of you talked about more civilians within Angarda Síochána, and in particular perhaps the need for a civilian at the top of Angarda Síochána at some stage. Uh, we have appointed more civilians to Angarda Síochána. They do certainly need to be at very the few. They do uh, certainly and, need to be at the top. There's been a very yeah. critical report that the percentage is something like 13% and it, in other Garda forces, police forces, is near to 30. Yeah. Now, I just want to, we're going to take a break and move on. Just each of the panel very quickly, do you think she will be Garda Commissioner on the 1st of January next? No, I don't, actually. No. Uh, I do. In, despite, in despite, despite your <laughs> despite your source from yesterday, I <laughs> my panel today: Roisin Shortall, TD, Deputy Noel Rock, and Kitty Holland of the Irish Times. Well, two things happened this week, which, in my view, was very damning for Tusla. Uh, firstly, uh, we had a report from the Ombudsman uh, called "Taking Stock." It condemned the Child and Family Agency for appalling mishandling and processing abuse allegations. The failures included five-year delays to conclude a case and one particular uh, case of an unfounded allegations against a grandfather. He died before he was cleared. Fifteen months delay in even opening and examining a case. Confidential data sent to the wrong address. Non-adherence to agreed procedures laid down in court judgments. Lack of empathy. Misfiling of social work records. Not notifying people of their right to have a supportive person with them and not even advising accused persons of charges against them. And then if we put that side by side, we have the cavern personnel of Tusla, who, who, whose performance is really quite extraordinary. Firstly, we have a councillor in Rianne who failed to reread her own written report, whereby something uh, that was a, a, an unsustained case in 98 was transformed into digital rape falsely. A social worker then decided to pursue the case despite it being closed and now cannot explain her actions. Another social worker failed to notice the discrepancy between the first psychologist's phone records uh, of the complaint as against the written record and then a separate social Tusla worker randomly reactivating the file in April 14. And then to cap it all, you have a a Tusla manager in Cavan who cannot recall being aware of McCabe, was presented with evidence of six meetings he attended with him and said the records were correct. Um, Kitty, you you wrote about this during the week. How could anyone have confidence in what looks like, if you take the macro in terms of Tyndall, the micro in terms of Cavan, is this not a basket case? Well, I mean, yeah, so some people, yeah, it's, it's certainly... 
taking all that, it, it looks, it's really bad. I mean, the, the cases um, that Tyndall looked at, they were nine cases that came to his office and he examined them and um, the findings about um, the grandfather who um, an allegation of sexual abuse was made against him um, by um, by an adult um, who said she had been abused by him as uh, when she was a child. And though that well, he wasn't cleared until um, until, until after he died. Um, and then the cases with the uh, Charlton Tribunal as well. There, I mean, yeah, th- it it all looks uh, terrible. And I don't want to sound like an uh, apologist now for Tusla, but I, d- I do think Tusla gets an incredibly hard press. And I think it has to be remembered that Tusla was, start- was fa- started in 2014, was taken out of the HSE and put by itself to run child protection, adoption, education welfare. Um, it gets 47,000 referrals a year. Um, without enough social workers, without um, enough support staff, without even a computer system, still three three service three of its seventeen service areas still don't have a computer system. They're paper based. Cavan Monaghan service area being one of them. Systemic cop <coughs> cock ups, uh, complete errors explained by lack of resources. No disciplining of the people in question explained by lack of resources. Yeah, I mean, I get yeah, I, these. These are certainly issues. Like if you were us. filing a report mm. uh, for the Irish Times and conflated two different court cases, I don't think your editor would be too happy about it. No, they wouldn't. They, they wouldn't. Um, and journalists do make mistakes. But when a journalist makes a mistake, it doesn't result in someone's name being, you know, reputation being destroyed or children being left at risk. Or um, so it, the, the stakes are an awful lot higher. Tuzla and obviously the uh, the focus on Tuzla what Tuzla when things go wrong are, is is much um, well, more focused you, and correct. As soon as you you've decided to, to defend Tuzla, I mean, I didn't I'm throw not, in Maeve Lewis's one in four mm. complaints of horrendous delays in relation to victims getting abuse. The complete reliance on Bernardo's and the ISPCC for out of hours services right across the country. Not to speak of the Grace case that's already cost six. Point three million, and is a commission of inquiry. Yeah, well, Great Grace was um, HSE, uh, HSE Southeast. Well, they, uh, they, they couldn't even issue the apology properly. Well, it was the HSE. I mean, that was Tony O'Brien. That was oh. the HSE. Okay. Um, so I mean, I think that they. Okay, so I am now sounding like a defender for Tusk. <laughs> You're doing I a good do, job, but I do, I do feel that it's more complex than. Um, than the media and political uh, voices who would like again to have a you know a political score again with the the Garda Commissioner. There's always this is about promotion. Can I put it to you that us being kind or benign about these kind of issues actually means you don't do accountability in this country? And these are serious. Like I haven't heard one peep out of the chairperson Nora Gibbons, one peep out of uh, Gary Joyce, who's who's you know a brand marketing guru. I mean, the fact of the matter is, what was revealed at the Charlton Tribunal was systemic incompetence or a conspiracy. There is no doubt about that. But you have to say, why is this the case with an agency that is so new that was only set up in 2014? And there is no point in setting up an agency and giving it a very important responsibility without funding that properly. And without having in place the kind of accountability systems that are acceptable in this day and age. And, you know, it's important to bear in mind, Tusla was set up in 2014. We know that from figures that are available from 2015, that at that point there were nearly 10,000 unallocated child welfare cases that were backed up there. 
Now, you know, just bear that in mind. We're talking, there's a huge burden from dealing with all of the historic cases, but there are current cases there. Children in dangerous situations, almost 10,000 children in those situations who don't have a social worker. And that was the extent of underinvestment in the service, that you had that kind of waiting list. Now, to some extent, that has been dealt with because additional funding was provided in 2015. But even now, to this day, we have a backup of 4,000 children waiting to be allocated a social worker and over 600 of those are priority cases. Now, you know, we talk about the abuse of the past, but we currently have a situation where we know that there are large numbers of children in dangerous situations who are being sexually abused or seriously neglected. And the system that's there in place is incapable of responding to that. Now, you know, for the last few years, Tusla has been operating this system with a very large number of junior social workers with huge caseloads and they were operating a system that they could only take on a new case if they dropped an existing case. Now, young social workers were put in that impossible situation where, you know, they had to stop providing a service to one child because there was another child that was in greater need. Now, that's a completely dysfunctional system. And it's that way because it is underfunded fundamentally. I I accept your point about resources in the job, but could I say this? I was health spokesperson in the late 80s and I spent day after day in what ultimately became the 1991 Child Care Act. And the level of power to a social worker in relation to a care order, to removing a kid uh, in terms of a supervision order. I put it to you that there is no worse stigma, particularly for a man, than to be accused of being a kiddie fiddler fiddler or a paedophile. To take five years to find something was unfounded and, and in some of the judgment calls, I mean... Someone had to lift the phone in Tusla and ring someone and say, that case back in 1998 at a party, that's been cleared up. Why do we even... Like, nothing actually happened in 2013 that McCabe had done to reactivate the file. I mean, I have to put it to you that these powers we've given to social welfare, social workers, does put an onus on them to get it right. Well, it, I, I it think absolutely it's... does. But unless you have the actual bodies there to do it, you know, it's not going to happen and cases are going to slip through the cracks in the system. And it, like the cases that, that um, the ombudsman highlighted there in his report are absolutely indefensible. I mean, those, when there's a, an allegation of child abuse against a person, that can destroy a person's life. It's devastating. Life. It's devastating. And the idea Particularly that... Particularly if it's not true. Yeah, absolutely. And the idea that a that case like that could be left run for, you know, long periods of time is indefensible. There's no question about and that. And he had to intervene for the grandfather to even see his grandkids. Yes, but the point I'm making is that that's completely unacceptable. But, you know, there's that problem within Tusla. But there's also the problem of there being over 600 priority child yeah, welfare cases that, that aren't being dealt with. So that means it has this, the, the agency needs to be properly funded but also of course you need proper levels of accountability and the two have to go hand in hand. Okay Nola let's you defend the indefensible too. 
Uh, well, certainly, I won't be becoming an unofficial <laughs> spokesperson for Tusla here. I think Roisin makes a completely valid point in terms of the resourcing. I think there is a strong need for more resourcing of Tusla. Nobody's uh, denying uh, the importance and the weight that should be placed on these cases. Uh, in 2016, we gave 36 million additionally. In 2017, 37 million additionally. Their ask is somewhere in the region of about 46, 47 million per annum. So there is a gap there, certainly, and they aren't being resourced to the fullest possible extent. Absolutely acknowledge that, and it's a priority for budget 2018, or at least I hope it is. Um, Ahead of tax cuts. Ahead of tax cuts, yeah, absolutely. I wonder. Well, we'll wait and see. I mean, I, 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 I can only. I well, can only we have the squeeze middle today, uh, putting exactly. them up in the polls. Yeah. Tax I can only cuts. put forward anyway. my point of view as a no. backbencher. Obviously, okay. I don't write the budget, but in any event, and um, there's also a culture. It, there's oh. also a culture of accountability, though, that is needed there. And um, there are serious, serious cases that are outlined in that ombudsman report, and there are serious lacks of accountability for the individuals who are working in those cases. But that, now, that, some that of also that, goes to resources. I indeed, mean, some of because that, you well, are, I mean, it's, it's abuse cases are extremely complex. In, in that situation with the grandfather, for instance, it should have been progr- progressed faster. Absolutely. It should have been, there should have been more urgency in pursuing what was K- the but situation. Kitty. But imagine, imagine he had been, just supposing, and uh, there's a situation where there's an allegation of abuse and they say, do you know what, we've done an investigation and we think we think everything's fine. And then it turns out he w- is abusing. I mean, uh, they, no, but sorry. Okay. In a lot well, of let ways me put a direct question. In 2014, Morris McCabe's family, his wife and four children, were told they were at risk mm. over a giant nothing burger. Well, that seems to have... I mean, they, that, that, from what I understand, seems to have been a massive cock-up in that... There was an out. There was an outside um, organi- um, councillor who was not working for Tusla who sent. No, it was Tusla all on their own. She, she, the Rian councillor did the original yeah. uh, fundamental catastrophic error. Yeah. But the pursuit of the case in 2013, 2014 was entirely a matter well, for Tusla. From Tuesday. what I understand is that the the the, the Rian councillor sent in the wrong information. That that was transposed then to one file, but not another file. So there were two files. There was one, and the one that was opened then by someone who was diligently going back through cases that not were were not yet closed, found this on the file and went, "Oh my God, we have to act on this," Mm -hmm. and acted on it. So there was bad information that person acted on, and it just seems to have been yeah a horrendous series of cock-ups, which started outside Tuzla. Okay, this brings us on to today's interview uh, article by Tony O'Brien of HSE. Um, okay, let me put the top line of this to you, Noreen, that, that you did this wonderful Roshin. work. Roshin, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Freudian slip there. Uh, um, that like you did this 10-year ten ten strategic assessment, and I think it's right to say that you recommended like an additional resources of 5.8 billion over 10 years would need to be spent. And here we have Tony O'Brien coming out today saying... Hold on a second. And he's in the front line of this, right? He's saying you have massive duplication of hospital services. You have too many hospitals and A&E departments. And if you concentrated and rationalised and consolidated them, you would get much, much better value. Did you recommend that in your report? Because politicians, we all know, the one thing they want is not in my backyard. Don't touch Drogheda. Port Leash, Sligo Hospital, because this is my re-election we're talking about. He, he, he highlights the issue of the political context of running the health service with finite resources. Does he have a point? Absolutely, he does have a point. And the article in today's paper was essentially the uh, talk that Tony O'Brien gave in Glenties during the week. And I was up 
there at that and I, I made a contribution as well. And I don't disagree with any of the points that Tully O'Brien makes here. Um, there's a huge job of work to be done in terms of reforming the way we provide health services. And the committee that I had the um, pleasure of chairing over the last year um, recommended moving to a whole new model of care. We're very dependent on hospitals in this country. It's the most expensive place to provide care. And we've been talking for many years in this country about the need to concentrate services at community level through primary care and social care um, and not have people travelling long distances, going to hospitals, sitting in, in ED departments, um, you know, waiting for outpatient appointments. And we have that 660,000 people on waiting lists for hospital services. So we recommended the move to a whole new model of care, a universal single tier health service, similar to what is available in most other European countries. But of course, you can't make that switch in the type of service that you provide when our existing services are on a knife edge. You can't say, I'm going to stop everything now and build this new system. You have to have a transition to a new system. It's like I compared it to, you know, repairing an aircraft while in flight. The, the aircraft must be kept in, in the air while you introduce the changes. And that's why we've said there is a need for a transition fund to set up the new system so that you can switch activity and you can take those key decisions about what is the most rational way to provide health services and how do you do that in a way that replicates what was done, I suppose, in relation to the cancer strategy where Professor Which Tom Keane... Which was very Keen unpopular came in. in some was very unpopular, yeah. but, you know, Tom Keane had the support of and the Taoiseach well. in that yes. and it has worked well and one of the points that Tom Keane made to us he came in to speak to our committee and one of the points he made was that one of the most important things that we need to do within the health service is to make um, consultants in particular accountable at hospital level for their performance and you know there is again we're back to this thing about the lack of accountability this problem goes to the heart of a lot of the issues affecting both the Gardaí, Tusla, all of our state agencies. There is a big problem with the lack of accountability and accountability must start at the top. You can't say to a junior uh, social worker that you have to be accountable for what you're doing. If they know that the Secretary General of the Department or the CEO of the organisation that they work for is not accountable nor is the Minister. So accountability must start at the top of an organisation and must work its way right down through it. Now we always welcome your texts and views. Uh, The government may have confidence in the Commissioner Noel but the public who pay our wages don't, says Mike. Noreen already had a two weeks holidays not long ago. Noreen has been in top management for quite a while. She had to know everything that was going on, says Joan in Limerick. Um, and lots more in relation to that. Uh, all their money spent, that's the HSE, on salaries, not services. Ivan, correction for Kitty. Journalists have ruined many lives of adults and children, says Fred. Um, Kitty says journalists don't wreck reputations. Ha ha, what about RTE programme about a priest in Kenya, says Kevin in Dublin 5. Uh, Tusla have a 9 to 5 work ethic at best. Do a day's work rather than looking for more to do. Your panel are all Tusla apologists. When I sat my leaving cert, I was told to read the questions twice. Do they not teach social workers accuracy 
or even diligence. Put that to your panel. And would this, in relation to healthcare, as a full-time carer for eight years, only solution, free universal health service paid by progressive taxes, Kieran and Tralee. And finally, what would this new model of care look like? The Dutch model. Well, we did spend four years wasting our time in relation to that UHI experiment. Kitty Holland, I'm just going to read one section from Tony O'Brien's article. And I mean, this is the guy who's running it, the CEO of the service, the HSC. Our health service construct is outdated, not fit for purpose. We as a society have been too reticent to make the really hard decisions in order to fundamentally change it. Is that valid? Well, I think it is. And I think, I think the... Um the point that it's uh, too bound up with political considerations is, abso- is absolutely the case. I think it would be wonderful if you could take the whole running of the health service um, for a couple of years in terms of its structures and streamlining and how to make it more efficient out of, out of politics, though I'm sure then people would be... I'd be accused of saying that that's an assault on democracy but it does seem that with so many issues of political considerations trump what really needs to happen when it comes to things like housing, healthcare, traveller accommodation um, that sort of backyard considerations um, come into it um, in, in terms of um, trumping what really needs to be done um, but I agree with Roisin about the fact that it, a transitional fund should be needs to be established to really invest in local services and um, and in particular in GP care and primary care. I mean, the, the 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 cost of going to a GP is one of the issues that stops people going, which you know makes people get more sick and then they end up. And I remember I've have two children, and uh, when they were younger, I would always say, you, you know, you're not going to the GP unless you're sick enough to go to hospital because it's just the, the fear of going, spending sixty euro, and then being told, you know, seven up and. A, a few days in bed will do. Um, so it's the costs at the very beginning of, uh, pe- of people's health issues, which I think is stopping people um, use the primary care system that we have and forcing people to the to the nuclear option of hospital, which is um, which is causing the costs at that end. So it needs to be um, turned on its head. Noel Rock, we had uh, back in 2011 this this whole new panacea of universal health insurance. We had a misadventure that's now been scrapped <coughs> uh, when Leo took over from O'Reilly. Now we have Simon Harris, who's currently on his money moon. Good luck to him on that. Um, but I mean, is there any sense of a new departure from the government of implementing this report, of actually taking, you know, primary care seriously and of saying to Charlie Flanagan in Portleash, saying to Tony, what's his name, in Sligo, you know what, you're going to have to swallow here in the national interest. I think so. Uh, And I think on the first point, you know, the reason we established the Future and Healthcare Committee uh, was in order to establish and 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 discuss these things. Not now, to I know, buy time. I know it was at the instigation of the Social Democrats, and I know you were the one who pushed it and put it forward. And, and full credit for that, absolutely, Roshin, and full credit for chairing it as well. Um, and I think you know a lot of findings that came out of that, uh, bar the costs, um, were substantial. And they talk about the future of healthcare in Ireland, and a lot of it harks back to. Uh, I remember a year or two ago reading Sarah Sarah Burke's book on the topic, uh, Irish Apartheid, I think it was called. And it talks about the, the, the clear need for a fundamental restructure and reform of the Irish healthcare system. Um, and I think, you know, that's where we need to go. We have a bit of a hodgepodge right now, in effect, of private and public side by side. And it, it doesn't quite work. And it brings about higher costs per patient, generally speaking. And it isn't quite the solution that we need. So it's quite clear that we need a macro view on this that's beyond simple two, three-year terms of the doll and, and potentially beyond, you know, one particular party in the Oireachtas. And that we need a zoomed-out 
proper cohesive structural thinking in terms of how the healthcare system is provided for in Ireland and I think that report is the first but, but, step but, but like the critics of that report and I'm mostly talking about economists now who've said look uh, per capita and that is even taken the inflated leprechaun economics figures of GDP we're spending more than other other countries and therefore throwing more money at the problem is something that's not Possible. What does the government say about this report? Are they going to implement it or not? Well, the spend per capita is a consequence of the failing system, I think. And unfortunately, yes, you do need to spend more to fix that failing system. But once you fix that failing system, then fundamentally you're spending less per head or at least getting better outcomes per head, perhaps. Not necessarily. Well, of course, demographics will blow that out the window. Like with all the the, the 60,000 extra pensioners we have a year and people living beyond it. Yeah, I mean, we we do have challenging demographics, but there was one thing in Tony's piece that I was disappointed in somewhat, where he said that uh, politicians have had a consistent failure of making hard choices. I think some hard choices... Oh, that's right, isn't it? No, some hard choices were made between 2011 and 2016. You know, if you look at my colleague Frank Feehan in Roscommon, he suffered terribly as a consequence of a hard choice that was made there. If you look at my colleague Potty Coffee in Waterford, he suffered terribly as a consequence of a hard choice that was made there. So some hard choices were made around the country, and I think it's actually deeply unfair to castigate politicians when they did make hard choices. For we that we they have five minutes now. I want to move on to one other topic, which is housing. Uh, caught your eye... Um, the interview uh, Michal Martin gave to the Sunday Business Post today and one, you know, people say you know, Fianna Fáil is effectively propping up this government, mm. what it gets it wants and so on. He is putting forward a clear demarcation in relation to Fianna Fáil's policy versus the government's on social housing. What's he saying um, Kitty? Well he's saying that um, the government seems to have an ideological hang up um, against social housing which is um, preventing it from really tackling head on the, the problems, the huge housing crisis. The the official figure says we've 90,000 on the housing waiting list, 90,000 households, that's possibly 250,000 people and those figures are three years old, it's probably more like 130,000 households now on the social housing waiting list. Um, and of course we have thousands of people in homeless accommodation and the impact on children. Yeah, I see one report today, 55,000 a year it costs to keep some in emergency accommodation in yeah. a hotel. Yeah. That's staggering. And the, it's and more the, than a thousand a week. Yeah, and people are staying longer in in, social, in emergency accommodation. The numbers who are getting stuck in accommodation for more than two years has doubled in the last eight months. So what's Mion Martin going to do he's, about Well, it? He's, he's saying that the um, the hang-up about the, the limit on 10% of new, new estates being... Just explain that. Well, under, if you build a private estate? Yes, if you build a private estate, on the part, you have a Part 5 obligation on the developer to provide um, 10% of that estate as social housing. It also, though, that, that, so it's only 10%, um, or... For, yeah, 10%. Um, it also means that local authorities, when they're offered housing by NAMA, say they're offered 300 units in a in an apartment block, they can only take 30 of them. Um, and this hang-up that seems to be about that there's something wrong with more social housing in an area is stopping the government from, say, putting that up to 40% or 50% of a of mix, which could really tackle social, really tackle the housing crisis. And he's saying Fianna Fáil will build a lot more social housing. We've had four housing ministers in four years. Any hope for this one? That's a big part of the problem. 
you know, ministers keep moving on. Uh, plans are constantly reviewed and there's very little action. Um, and, you know, housing is undoubtedly the biggest crisis facing this country. And there's oh, so many different aspects to it. Obviously, the biggest failing is in relation to a whole generation of children now growing up in hotel rooms and the implications of that for their childhood and their lives are enormous. Then there's, there's you know, all of those people on the housing waiting list. There's those people who are paying enormous rents uh, that are just, you know, eating up their incomes. And then, of course, there's the other cohort of people whose homes are under threat. Uh, they're in negative equity and they're, they're facing a disaster in relation to their homes. So it's, it's a huge problem. It also means that it's very difficult for people to actually survive cost of housing, rental or paying a mortgage is a huge element of any family uh, budget. 35% so, of a lot of people's yeah, income. And, and 50, you know, 60%. Okay. Okay. It's all kind of implications in terms of generating new jobs here and that and people not being able to locate here because they can't afford housing. So it's such a fundamental part of our lives and our budgets that it should have been addressed by government and there's been a huge failure in this area. Of course what we need to do is to have a much better range of housing options <coughs> excuse me, for people. We tend to talk about either private housing or public housing and there's a whole lot of different ones in between. Like there's no affordable affordable housing scheme. Michael Noonan, extraordinarily in the last budget, said his objective was to increase the price of housing Mm. and he did that by introducing the Help to Buy scheme. It suits NAMA, it suits all the vested interests, it suits Tom Parland Parland and his colleagues and all of that. But government don't see this as a critical social service that needs to be provided. a record, way. five years, six years now of indictment against It's the arguably government. the biggest failure in the history of the state. Doubtedly, yeah. No, yeah. It, it is. It's an incredible challenge that we face on this. And I mean, a lot of it is as a consequence of the inaction in the years 2011 to 2013 on house building. Certainly. 2015 to 2017. What I would say is that as one of the few renters in the Oireachtas, I'm acutely conscious of that middle ground and of that middle segment uh, where people are suffering with over 50 or 60% of their disposable income going towards rent. Now, obviously, that is in my case necessarily. However, that being said, there is a clear need to A, fix the social housing problem, B, fix the affordable housing problem, and then C, fix the rental crisis almost simultaneously. One of the things that we did last week was we launched a co-op affordable housing in Roshi and the Mike constituency. Um, that's only a very small step, but it's a, a worthwhile step. And what we're looking at now is trying to implement legislation that will allow that co-op and others like it to build affordable housing right around the country. But okay. there's no affordable housing scheme. We've been looking for that for years. Well, right. And the government won't introduce... The problem is the government 000. has left housing to the market entirely. Absolutely. It has well, absolutely abdicated its, its responsibility. I want to absolutely thank, not. I, I, want to, I want to thank my panel. Roisin Shortall, uh, Social Democrats TD for Dublin North West. Noel Rock, Fine Gael TD for Dublin... Uh, is it North West as well? No, yeah, yeah oh, North West as well. And of course, member of the Public Council Committee. And Social Affairs Correspondent with the Irish Times, Kitty Allen. Yates on Sunday on News Talk. Brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you.